0: Good morning, you may be seated. Let's read from the Word of God this morning, Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering in order to take possession of it, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they don't let you graduate from seminary unless you can pronounce all the names in Deuteronomy, by the way. That's not true seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But in this way shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire." For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Let's skip over to Deuteronomy 9. This isn't in the bulletin, but we'll feel, uh, we'll mention this, so we should read it. Deuteronomy 9, 4, and 5. Do not say in your heart, after Yahweh your God has thrust them out before you, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart you are going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers. To abraham to isaac and to jacob will you pray with me one more time god almighty as as i preach your words this morning lord as i deal with some topics that are difficult to deal with god i pray that you would be with me Lord, i pray that the words that i say this morning would be your words lord i pray that if i say anything that i'm not supposed to or that aren't your words in some way, I pray that you would, Lord, erase them from the minds of these people this morning. And I pray that if I miss something, Lord, if I, if I don't say, for whatever reason, something that you intended me to say, I, I hold back from it, and I shy away from it. Lord, I pray that you would impress that point on the hearts of these people anyway. Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to convict us, to encourage us, to bring us closer to you, both individually and as a body of believers, as a church this morning, oh God. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen. There's a, there's a popular book and uh, children's uh, movie series called Harry Potter. Does anyone watch those? Anyone like those? You like Harry Potter? That's good. There's seven books. There's eight movies. Uh, I've never read the books. I've, I've wanted to, but I haven't. Um, but I've seen all the movies. Anyway, they follow a boy named Harry Potter and his two friends, Hermione Granger and Ron Weasley. And because these books are right, they're written about these characters, They each of them, all seven of those books, have a, some sort of conflict at the core of them that centers around those three characters, specifically Harry Potter but also as two friends. And there's a quote in in one of the movies, it may also be in one of the books, and I think I'm gonna butcher it now once I'm actually thinking about it. But there's a quote there that says what many people in that universe would probably be thinking. There's a professor, her name is Professor McGonagall. she has a beautiful Scottish accent, I'm not gonna try to do the accent. But she looks at them, she says, why when anything happens at this school, it's always you three at the center of it. When anything bad happens, when anything interesting happens, when there's you know, someone invading the school to do whatever, why is it always you three? And Ron Weasley, who's always the, the sheepish type, just, he says, we've been wondering the same thing. Which, when we, as people looking in on this universe that we know to be fictional, right? If you love Harry Potter, I'm sorry, but it's not true. Uh, as, we, as we look in on this universe that we know to be fictional, we know why those three characters always have something bad happen to them, right? It's because that just makes for good writing, right? It would be a boring book series if they were just three normal people just going about their normal lives and doing normal things. They have adventures happen to them because they're the main characters in a book series. But if you enter that universe and you're just a random student at Hogwarts, just looking around, you say, "Why is it always those three people that something happens to?" It's a question that you'd ask. I don't know if you've had that question while reading through the Bible, but it's a question that you could have as you're reading through the pages of Scripture. As you you know, start in Genesis and you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and all throughout the entire the entire uh, length of Scripture you may ask the question, why is Israel always at the center of everything? Why is it always them? What is it about them that they're at the center of God's plans? Are there other nations that God could have worked through? Why why did he pick them? And I know that not every character in the Bible is is a... um, you know, not every character in the Bible is from Israel. There, there are other people who, who have a relationship with God, who come into God's people. But it focuses on this one nation. Why is that? Ancient Israel may have been tempted to believe that God picked them because of their righteousness. They may have been tempted to pick, or tempted to believe that God picked them because they were this great nation, you know, that God could use in a great and mighty way. But Scripture is clear that that's not the case, right? As we, as uh, you know, mortal, finite people, think about how God is. You know, choosing these nations to work through. We can picture God, you know, above maybe a table with all of these nations spread out in front of him. That's not how it works, but, you know, if it helps us to think that way, then let's think about it that way. All of these nations, and God sees all of the nations of the world and of all times spread out before him, and he looks at them, right? He sees ancient Assyria, a great nation, absolutely, but a mean nation, a nation known for their ferocity, in battle, who's known for torturing their prisoners, who's known for their cruelty. He looks at maybe the Inuit, sometimes we call them the Eskimos, living peaceably by themselves and in the northern parts of this world, never, never a great power. He looks at them. He looks at nations that we haven't even heard of yet, empires in the centuries to come. He looks at them, and as he's considering who he will choose, does he pick a righteous nation? No. Because we know that no nation is righteous. They have all gone out of the way. Does he pick a great nation? Right? He could have looked at ancient Rome or the modern-day United States and say, man, if I picked them, I could really do some great things with them. But who did he pick? He picked a small nation. He picked a nation that was in slavery in Egypt. Were they the only nation that were enslaved? No. Other nations have been in bondage to other nations. But he looks at this nation, this small nation, this nation that he knows is stubborn. He says, I'm going to pick you, and I'm going to work with you and in you throughout human history to accomplish my purposes in this world. If we go back and we remember what we've talked about in previous weeks, we know that at the very beginning of this story, the story of the Bible, Adam and Eve sinned, right? They, they rejected God's command for their lives. They did it their own way. And because of that, the Bible says God cursed the ground. This land that Adam and Eve were living in, this special place where they could go and have a relationship with God, that became curse and they got driven from it. But God came to Abraham a few chapters later and he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Bless is the opposite of curse. I'm going to undo what I did to Adam and Eve. I'm going to make of you a great nation, not just you know, so they could be great, but I'm going to bless them. I'm going to use that great nation that comes from you to be a blessing to the entire world and I'm going to bring them back to a land that I've prepared for them. God is promising to Abraham that he's going to undo what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. They're going to come back and possess this land and become a blessing there. And so God, God goes down to Egypt when they're, when they're enslaved and he brings them out, right? He redeems them. He spares no expense in bringing them out of Egypt. He flexes his strong right arm in going down and bringing them out. And he brings them out to the wilderness, to a mountain where he begins a relationship with them a covenant with them if you will he says i am yahweh your god i brought you out of the land of egypt because of these things walk before me and keep these commandments see god picked israel before israel could do anything for god it was purely by his grace and by his goodwill Quick nerdy note: This isn't necessarily all that central to the to the message of uh, the message this morning. But Deuteronomy seven, there, there's a there's a, a thing in Hebrew um, writing, Hebrew poetry, where the main point comes in the middle of a section. Right? When we when I was when I learned how to write a paper in high school, I was taught you know you sum it up at the at the front of it. You have your thesis statement and your introductory paragraph and then you have your argument you get to the end and you you conclude it at the end. So if I'm reading a paper that's really long and I don't want to read the entire thing, I can just read the first little bit and the last little bit and I can get the main flow of the argument. In Hebrew writing, a lot of the time, that's inverted. So when we read a, a section like Deuteronomy 7, the main point doesn't necessarily come at the beginning and at the end. That's kind of sort of a a third point or a second point. So we have in Deuteronomy 7, the the chapter begins and ends in the same way. It talks about the nations being driven out. And then once you get a little bit closer to the center, it gives you the reason those nations are being driven out. It's because Israel is a holy possession. And then once you get to the very middle of the chapter, you see the reason for the whole thing. Verse number 7, It was not because you were more in number, Than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all the people but and here's the center of it it's the character of God but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt why does God love them according to that passage it's because God loves them. That's the reason that's given them, given there. God loves them because he loved them. It's just because he picked them. Not because they were better than anyone else. Not because they were this great military might. He just said, I'm gonna choose you. And I'm gonna work through you. The word love there, lest we be confused about what it means. It's not talking about like fluttery, heart palpitating, being in love, Disney, you know, hearts flowing from your eyes kind of thing. It's talking about a relationship. Right? When we think about marriage, sometimes we can think that the grounds for a marriage is being in love with somebody. Right? So I have feelings in my heart for this person. I have an affection for them. So I'm going to get married to them and once that affection is gone, if there's no longer a you know if my heart doesn't beat faster every time I see them, then I'm going to go find someone else who makes me feel that way. But that's not what love is, right? We, we call it, we call the affection, the heart, you know, the, the Disney heart eyes thing, we call that love. But love in a marriage is a deep allegiance to the other person, right? You marry someone because you're in love with them, but you stay married to them because you've made a choice to be with them. So even when you don't love the other person, you stay with them still and you still serve them because you, you love them. You are still loyal to the relationship that you have. That's the idea behind the word love here when it says God loved Israel. There's a relationship with there. The Bible word for that is a covenant. God has a relationship with Israel. He has chosen to enter into a relationship with Israel. He's chosen to love them. And we'll talk about this more in coming weeks, but he has called Israel to love him back. The reason he has a relationship with them is simply because he chose them. He loves them because he loves them. There's an opposite side of this coin, though, one that may be a little bit uncomfortable, and I think that we need to spend time talking about it. And that happens, we find that in the beginning of this chapter. When Yahweh, your God, brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, when the Lord God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. If that makes you uncomfortable, that's okay. If you read that and you say, man, that's that's a little much for me, that's okay. It's okay to feel that way. But we know that if if Israel is going to be a holy nation, God's treasured possession, this people that he loves, that he has set his affections on, if they're going to be that people, and they're going to come into this land, and they're going to make this land holy. If that land is really going to be a holy place where they can come and meet with God, then the land needs to be cleansed. I paused before I said that word because that that can be a loaded term. But it needs to be, it needs to be. There's not a better word than cleansed, is there? If something is going to be holy, the sinful things need to be taken out of it. So that's why they are. The nations are devoted to complete destruction. The word there for devote to complete destruction is not a, it's not a secular term, right? It's not the word for destroy or level or anything like that. It's actually a religious term. It's a religious term that might be familiar to you. If you've ever heard of the, the Arabic word haram, it's a, it refers to a concept in Islam for something that is, that is forbidden, right? Adultery is haram in Islam. Drinking wine is haram in Islam. It's, it's something that, not, it's not just forbidden, but it's, it's religiously set aside. It's sort of the opposite of holy. To be holy is something that's set aside for God's purposes. Haram is something that's set aside negatively for God's purposes. Consecrated in a negative way. So when Israel was supposed to go into the land, they were supposed to devote these people to complete destruction. The idea there is not necessarily they're supposed to go in and wipe them out, though it may entail that. But the idea is that they are sinful people who cannot be in a holy place meant to serve a holy God, so they are supposed to be set aside for Haram. They are supposed to be moved aside. There is some debate among scholars about what that word means. Some people will say that it's talking about genocide there. Some people will say that it's talking about going in and destroying everyone and everything. Others will say, and I lean towards this camp, but I'm not sure. Others will say that it's not necessarily talking about genocide. It's talking about just saying, hey, they are, they are an unholy people, so we're not going to make any alliances with them. We're not going to take any of their stuff. We're just going to set them aside. They're going to be unholy people. When we go in, we're going to break down all of their altars, and we're going to say they are, they are haram. They are, they are set aside. But wherever you fall on that, it is important to remember that Israel, when they are going in, they are not going in because of their own righteousness, as we read in Deuteronomy 9. They are going in because of the wickedness of other nations. Israel, however they are functioning here, they are functioning as the instrument of God's wrath on sinners. God is a holy God it is his prerogative to execute judgment on sinners israel is not here functioning as they're not just functioning as a nation that's going to go in and just kick people out for their own for their own enjoyment right we cannot use this chapter we cannot use these verses to try to excuse right our maybe america's uh, actions as we went into um, as we went into the new world and maybe brushed aside some indians we can't, we can't say, well, Israel did it when they went into the promised land. No, 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 that's, that doesn't make it okay. Israel here is functioning as the instrument of God's judgment. It's because of the wickedness of the nations. There's a tension here. On the one hand, Israel's going in because God has chosen them. And he's, he's removing, he's setting aside the nations is so that Israel can be in this holy place. But on the other hand, verse number 10, or verse number 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Remember those words, remember what they mean. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Right? It's not like they you know, count off a thousand generations and then it stops. It means God, God overflows in love. God is quick to forgive those who repent and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. I think there's two other places in Scripture we need to go in order to, in order to make sense of this a little bit more. The first one is back in Genesis chapter 15 when God first has that relationship with Abraham right when he first calls Abraham and says hey I'm gonna make of you a great nation right which we later find out is the nation of Israel way back hundreds of years before this God goes to Abraham and says I'm gonna make of you a great nation but they're not going to possess the land yet the reason because the iniquity the sin Of the Canaanites isn't yet full. The sin of the Canaanites isn't yet full. It's for that reason that Israel had to go down into the land of Egypt. It's for that reason that Israel had to wait to possess the land because if they had gone in too early they would have done so unjustly and earned the wrath of God on themselves. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a water park um, if you have, they sometimes have right, these, these buckets that, that are, like they're, they're weighted towards the bottom and when they, like, they have water dripping in them and then the water fills up and once it reaches a certain point and you can't see when that point is, it dumps because the water is heavier on the top than the bottom and then as soon as it dumps out, it dumps back and then it, and then it fills up. That's what I picture when I think of a cup that the Canaanites are filling up with sin. They keep sinning and they keep sinning and it hasn't dumped out yet because it's not full. But there's going to come a point in time where if they keep sinning and keep sinning and keep sinning, and it dumps out on them, where God's judgment comes on them. We know that God is quick to forgive. We think of the story of Jonah. If you don't remember the story of Jonah, God calls a prophet to a sinful land, the land of Nineveh. And he goes and says, you know, preach against that city because their wickedness is so vile against me that unless they repent of their sins, I'm going to destroy them in 40 days. And it's this whole other story about, you know, xenophobia and how Jonah doesn't want God to forgive his enemies. But when Jonah actually gets there, he preaches. It's just like, it's just a few words in Hebrew. He just says, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And then everyone just Repents. Everyone, like, puts on sackcloth and ashes. Like the text says, the Bible says that they all put sackcloth and ashes on their animals. They just went all out repenting. They said, forget this, we are are sorry for our sin. We are going to turn to God because he alone can forgive us. And what did God do? He forgave them. Right? He was on the verge of bringing destruction on them. He was right there. Their sin was just about full. But when they turned to God, he unleashed his blessing on them. Because he is a God who is quick to forgive, but slow to anger. I heard, I heard the phrase this week that there is, a, there is a stiff lock on God's anger. You have to do some work to get it open. But God's grace and God's love are on a hair-trigger. is quick to be gracious we do not know if God sent a Jonah to the Canaanites we do know actually that there was there was a priest of the most high God named Melchizedek who was in the land who was you know ministering in some way we don't know if God sent other prophets we don't know what kind of messengers God sent to the land but God waited not one century not two not three not four God waited 400 years before he said oh their sin is full I'm going to bring in my holy people whom I have chosen, whom I have chosen to bless. They're going to come into the land, and they're going to experience the blessings. And I'm going to remove this other land, uh, these other nations from the land. If that still makes you uncomfortable, I would encourage you to remember in Scripture that a few hundred years after Israel was in the land. God did not excuse their sin because God had chosen them, but their sin also became full before God. God sent the nations of Assyria and Babylon in to to remove them from the land because their sin had grown so great before God. But again, he waited hundreds of years, and if they had repented, then they could have avoided God's judgment so we have here once again this tension God loves Israel because God loves Israel that's the reason for it's not because they are righteous it's not because they are great God simply loves them because they love them but at the same time God treats every nation on whether or not they love him back do you see the tension there is Israel blessed because God loves them or is Israel blessed because they do because they they love God Which one of those is it? I think we're supposed to sit in that tension and wrestle with that tension, and I think that tension is one that informs our Christian lives today. We know that Israel was chosen by God to be God's treasured possession, but there were no Israelites who kept God's commands as they were supposed to be kept. And again that's not that's not a jewish thing it's not because they were you know they were jewish and right there there are people who can never keep god's commands it's because it's a human thing because they are humans they kept sinning and kept sinning and kept sinning but Jesus Christ was an israelite he was a descendant of abraham and he kept god's law as it was intended to be kept he was the one who loved god truly and perfectly. He did all of the things that Abraham couldn't do, that Moses couldn't do, that King David couldn't do. He did all of those things. And so because of that, he fulfilled God's purposes for the nation of Israel. But if you remember what we read earlier in Romans chapter 9, not all who are of Israel are of Israel. Let me flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. And so the line between who are God's chosen people and who are not God's chosen people is not today whether or not someone is Jewish or not. It's whether or not they are a part of Jesus. This is from the letter of Ephesians. This should be familiar to us if you've, if you've been going um, as, as we went through the book of Ephesians this spring. Verse number three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Remember that word. Remember what it means in the flow of Scripture. He has blessed us in Christ. Because of Christ, because of what Christ has done as the true and perfect Israelite, we are blessed. We experience the blessing that God promised to Abraham in Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. Does that word mean anything to you? Does it look back to God picking the nation of Israel out of all of the other nations? He chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So if I'm, reading, if I'm reading this text correctly, there are, there are people whom God has looked down on, just as God looked down on the nation of Israel and chose them, not because they were great, not because they were righteous, but simply because God loved them. In the same way, God looks at us and he chooses to, chooses to save us, not because we are righteous, not because we, we bring him anything, but simply because God is good. He chose us to be blessed in christ he chose us to be blameless and walk in holiness before him but not everyone is blameless not everyone walks in holiness with god there are people in this world maybe there are people in here who are outside of christ who are not blessed in christ there are people whom god has not chosen and if, that, if that's you, if, there, if there's someone close to you whom you are, you are concerned about or you're worried about, let's go back to what we read in the Old Testament. Just as God gave the Canaanites, just as God gave the Ninevites time after time after time after time after time after time after time, after time to turn from their sin and to turn to God, so he gives us time after time after time to turn from our sin and to turn to him. So this means that if you, are, if you are in Christ, if you are saved, if you are one of the people of God, then you cannot look at yourself and say, man, what a good person I am. Man, I've done all of these great things. God loves me because I, you know, frankly, I make his kingdom better. We can't say that because that's not why God chose me. He just chose me because he loved me, loves me. But if when we get to the final day we cannot say god you're pouring out your judgment on me because you just didn't love me when in reality that god gives grace and patiently waits for people to repent and calls them to repent and calls them to repent and calls them to repent repent. it may be that the day comes for you where if you harden your hearts and you refuse to repent of your sin, you say, no, I think this is okay, actually. I think I can continue to walk in my selfishness or my pride or my arrogance. I can continue to do it. I don't need God. I don't need the whole religion thing. I'm just going to keep walking in my own way. Even though God gives you chance after chance after chance to repent, there will come a day where you become haram, where you become devoted to destruction, where God pours out his wrath on you, not because he didn't give you a chance, but because when he gave you a chance, you hardened your heart. So I ask you all today, consider where you are. If you are a Christian, rejoice in the fact that God chose you, not because you did anything right, not because you brought anything to the table, but God simply chose you because he chose you. And if you're Not a Christian, if you're not following God, know that God is not rejecting you because of Him. He's rejecting you because you keep hardening your hearts. And He will be gracious with you if you repent. So I encourage you come to Christ. Come fall at the feet of the cross. Come acknowledge that Jesus Christ, in His death, took your sin, took your punishment. Took all of the wrath of God in him. Bore, his, bore our iniquity in his own body so that we could be saved. Come fall on your knees and acknowledge that God accepts you not because of anything that you do. He accepts you because of Christ. Mercy there is great. Grace flows freely. Come to God while you still can. And rejoice that he will take you, not because of anything that you have done, but simply because God has chosen to love you. Will you pray with me?